So the last time we recorded, last time we posted an episode was February 4th, 2016. Uh, So has anything happened in the intervening? I mean, I don't know. Is there anything we should talk about that's happened, you know, in the world or in America? Not really, right? No. I mean, I moved to a new house. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's pretty big. That's a big Uh, one. That's a big one. uh, Truth and time ended Yes, that's that right. Was... That's right. The apocalypse. I forgot about that part. <laughs> I never want to make it sound as dramatic all that, but you know. Yeah. The complete overhaul of culture. Uh-huh. Um the destruction of the government from the inside out. <laughs> it's going yeah. well. Yeah, I feel like it's very much a situation of like an Ewok being off planet for a little while uh-huh. and then coming back. What happened? Guys? Be, so, so what I miss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the reactions obviously have been kind of what you'd expect. People are sort of losing their minds. And, uh, I wanted you to talk a little bit about this thing you wrote. Um, there is no future. Um, yeah. And just kind of use that as a way to get started. Uh, yes, we're going to talk about Trump. Uh, I haven't written about it really much at all, um, but um, but this is this is that episode, and maybe we'll move <laughs> through it. And next month we can write we can write and talk about something else. But um, maybe. we're we're not making any promises. Yeah, but this actually went up December fifteenth before the uh, election, and um, the yeah, which title- is. Yeah, the title is There Is No Future. Um, Which was the only thing on our website for a while. Yeah. A months. And, I mean, maybe that should have just been like our cue to ourselves to just quit. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but but we're not gonna. Not gonna do it. Uh, it's, you know, and it's interesting, too, that this is before we really got a taste of the real. I mean... This is pre-inauguration, post-election. So, I don't know. I was I was struggling with it at the time that I wrote it, and I'm still struggling with it now. This idea that the election kind of it, it certainly didn't create it, but it accelerated it. This idea of everything we're dealing with is the only thing that we're dealing with, and it is the primal thing we're dealing with, whatever is the new and I feel like this election has let that become that that concept become this complete snowball, and it now defines every single political interaction that we have, because every new scrap of information is the only information. You know, there's no memory, um, and and part of why I was writing that at the time was that it was the Advent season, uh, where for Christians, it's a it's a sense of patience and hopefulness and sitting in your sorrow, uh, but also with a mind on the not yet and the possible. And I feel like no one has a damn clue how to do any of that right now. Yeah, you write, and I think it's worth reading, you write, waiting is not stagnant after all. Waiting is the sprinter hiked on the starting blocks. True patience is a tense state. One fraught with preparation and more activity than can be seen. 
waiting with an eye on the almost but not quite is combative and upending. Let us be ready. Let us be against those with no future in mind. Let us be Advent people. I think that waiting is the sprinter hiked on the starting blocks is a all-time great phrase about like what faith is. I mean, that's awesome. <laughs> and uh, I really think it, you know, I really think that it sort of is a necessary voice for, I don't know, whatever, whatever this idea of the resistance is. Right. That right. patience and um, the ability to reflect and like change your mind um, is really important right now. And it's kind of, it's kind of, as you say, we have decided that cautious thinking is not required because it requires an acknowledgement of the future, which we collectively appear to have set on fire. <laughs> I mean, what's frustrating is that we're, you know, a couple of months past this writing and I don't feel like that's really any different. This idea of tense waiting and being prepared for something goes out the window when, you know, if you're going to lose your mind on every new audacious or outrageous thing that this administration does, and I see people doing that, and I think there's just no way, number one, there's no way to maintain that. Um, if you're talking about pure, practical, political action, there is no way to tame, to to sustain that level of fervor. You just can't, you can't do it. it. That would require an infinite amount of energy. And so I think what's called for is, it's a really smart, you know, patient, and I'm not saying patient in the sense of not acting. I hope that, I mean, just like what you read, that's, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, it's patience is chock full of tension, but it has to be knowing what your moment is and being ready to move in that moment. And so we have to be very clear about, for those of us who are unaccepting of this current political reality, in the sense that we want it to change, we want it to, to flip, it has to be, well, what's the moment going to be to use all my gifts and talents and use all my you know, political energy that I've stored up to do something? What is that moment going to look like and how am I going to strike in that moment? And if we're not clear about that, then we might as well just be, you know, yelling at a wall, which is what a lot of what's going on feels like is just people screaming their frustrations into the void. Yeah, just spinning their Twitter. wheels. <laughs> right, it's Twitter. Right. You know, that's it seems like that's all that's what most people, definitely not all people, I think there there are several people even that I'm aware of either in my life or or just social media circles that I feel like they know what they're doing and they're very clear about their goals and their role in achieving those goals. You know, so the issue is you have people and you've talked about this before, so invested in their outrage and so invested in being this outward energetical force with no direction. Like that's their way of reacting and that's going to sputter and die. Yeah. I, I think that, purely reactionary politics are always a dead end and we're in this moment that feels like a sort of state of emergency 
where the only thing we can do is react. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also the only thing we have been doing is reacting. And I think that people tend to default to whatever their practice is. So if they don't have a practice of trying to take the fullest possible stock of a moment of a political event of, you know, a world historical event and instead react at a gut level with a knee jerk kind of reaction, you know, that can, that can create movements, but I don't think that without, without solid reflection behind why we are reacting and what we are reacting for, that it's basically empty. It's kind of a meaningless thing. And um, I think that the, the first example of this was the effort um, after the election to try to flip uh, the Electoral College in yes. Hillary Clinton's favor. And I understand why people react to that way. I, I think that it's, um, I think it's totally understandable. And I think in, in hindsight, I'm like, you know, if that had been, if that effort had been successful, um, we wouldn't be sort of in the mess we're in now, but we would be in a different mess, a much um, different mess, much different mess. And, and, you know, I, I wrote about this, um, sort of saying that like, you know, it's a fine idea. I understand why people are freaking out, but a nation is not sort of merely made up of enumerated laws and established structures. It's also made up of the mores and folkways, cultures and traditions that we that we all participate in making all the time. That there are silent and spoken arguments um, that that aren't written down in the Constitution that constitute the nation of the United States. And so so talking about a very short historical moment where the Electoral College um, was sort of based on the conscience of the people who sat on the Electoral College and then projecting that forward to our present moment and ex- expecting that that lobbying the Electoral College in that way would not fundamentally change what that institution has been for our 200 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is just profoundly short-sighted yeah. in a way that is like baffling, totally baffling to me. And I, and I think that, I think that, um, Donald Trump functions the same way that the 1950s function, or maybe let's say world war two. Mm-hmm. One thing that I learned in studying American religious history is that the 1950s functions as a kind of lens through which we view everything that came before in American religion. And I'm talking about Christian religion in this case, but I would argue that it extends to other religions as well. Um, So primarily in mainline Protestantism, normalcy of what mainline Protestant Christian religion in America is was set in the 1950s in a in a profound way as a reaction to the trauma the national trauma that was uh, Pearl Harbor and World War II both right. in Europe and in the Pacific theaters 
people came home and they established these ways of living through through religion that set a groundwork um, for the rest of religion going into the future, but also extending backward into the past. If you really go and study, if you really go and study American religion before World War II, the 50 years before World War II, and going back before that to the Revolutionary War and the colonial period, it is totally alien. And I'm not talking about 200 years ago. I'm talking about right, 1920, right. 1910. You know, this is when my grandparents were born. Religion was totally alien in a way that we would really not recognize today. And so we use this lens of the 1950s to view everything that came before. And it sort of destroys the full picture that we should be getting of what religion was, what Protestant religion was before that period. In a similar way, Donald Trump is the fact of Donald Trump's presidency is destroying our understanding and our ability to see what has come before. Donald Trump is a lens, or if you want, a sphincter through which... <laughs> through which the past is now seen. So when um, someone is detained at the border because they have a quote-unquote Muslim-sounding last name, we now blame that on the Trump administration. Right. When under the Obama administration, that kind of behavior was par for the course. People were uh, stopped regularly and detained for hours with families and families with children at the border because they had Muslim-sounding names or dressed a certain way. And um, we're talking about American citizens here. So that fact is, that fact is important. I mean, that, the fact that that happened under the Obama administration, a supposedly uh, sort of liberal, high-minded president who sort of now stands for everything that Trump does not stand for the failure to the failure to recognize that is a failure to have a full picture of what America is and in a similar way we have commentators smart people like Andrew Sullivan who wrote in uh, New York magazine on February 10th of this year he wrote this one of the great achievements of free society in a stable democracy is that many people, for much of the time, need not think about politics at all. The president of a free country may dominate the news cycle many days, but he is not omnipresent. And because we live under the rule of law, we can afford to turn off the news at times. A free society means being free of those who rule over you to do the things you care about, your passions, your pastimes, your loves, to exalt in that blessed space where politics doesn't intervene. In that sense, it seems to me we already live in a country with markedly less freedom than we did a month ago. That's the thesis statement. In that sense, it seems to me we already live in a country with markedly less freedom than we did a month ago. It's less like living in a democracy than being a child trapped in a house where there is no abusive 
or where there is an abusive and unpredictable father who will brook no reason, respect no counter-argument, admit no error, and always, always up the ante until catastrophe inevitably strikes. This is what I mean by the idea that we are living through an emergency. Okay, that's like really well written. He's like amazing. I mean, he's really like talented, <laughs> yes. right? But it's wrong. It is wrong. We already lived under a condition where the traditional ways that people interacted with each other were a crumbling ruin. And I'm talking about, uh, I'm talking about church. I'm talking about synagogue. I'm talking about any religious institution you can, you want to, like you want to throw out there, uh, as well as sort of traditional ways of gathering in men's and women's groups. I mean, all these things that were sort of set in the 1950s, right. Mm -hmm. have now crumbled um, lions and rotary clubs and even organizations like the girl scouts and boy scouts, which are still uh, attended. But I would guess that this is a total guess, but I would guess that, that those organizations have seen a real slip in membership since in the last 50 years as well. Mm -hmm. So all these things are falling apart and the way that we interact with each other, the way that we for form meaning is through politics It's through politics on cable news, on the local news and online. Yeah, and what and the and the point he's missing is that, you know, we've we've given over all things political to the neoliberal realm. That's right. I mean, that it's all individual and and privatized. Mm -hmm. That every interaction can be, or should be, and so there is no sense of no true sense of the social self in the way that. I, as a social being, have some underlying responsibility to politics as an everyday reality. And the and the only way that the only way that the self relates to the way that the social self is is activated is through crisis. So, and on cable news, this is has been true for twenty years. That that only through crisis is meaning activated in our lives. And so I, you know, I, I just see this as a moment where not only is the future out the window, but any understanding of the past is sort of impossible because if you bring up the fact that the neoliberal order that came before wasn't so great and actually created the conditions, <laughs> created the conditions by which someone like Trump could rise to power. Mm-hmm. And wield it so authoritatively. Yes. And I mean, you were told, but you're told, you're told, and I see this again and again online, you're told that you are normalizing an authoritarian regime. Right. Like, like executive orders weren't already a thing. Like, like ruling via them wasn't already a normal practice. That's right. And, and so I, I just think it's, um, we have a total poverty uh, of imagination about how to respond to someone like Trump because we don't have a full picture of what the conditions we were under actually were and actually are and continue to be. So in some sense, Trump is apocalyptic because there's a break with the with the order that came before. But in another sense, Trump is apocalyptic in the sense that he is revealing the conditions that we lived under up until this point and just could not see until someone as vile as, as he is and his administration led by Bannon is that, that, that sort of 
the shock to the system is, I mean, almost what we needed, uh, to, to try to activate a new imagination in people. Um, but I don't think there's, I just, I don't think they're seeing it. I think it's great that people are out in the streets and all that, but yeah. Well, no, I don't either. And I think, you know, as you were saying that I, I started, you know, thinking it's not only that people, you know, that they're impoverished and don't have the big picture. They don't even have a sliver of the picture That's because right. the, the imagination, and, and this is also why, this is why I agree with you that I don't think people are seeing it either. The imagination is so slim because you have a, a heavy denial about what was going on. You have a heavy denial by liberals about what was going on in the Obama administration. Yeah. And not only that, take it a step further. And these same people this week are lifting up George Bush as some <laughs> reason, reason statesman. I mean, you have liberals on Twitter talking about how he wasn't so bad on Islamophobia and Muslim issues. Like he didn't completely destabilize a Muslim region of the world, you know, and, and that he, he didn't lay the groundwork for our current Islamophobia and, and our relations with the Islamic world. I mean, (laughs) the, the, the cognitive dissonance, you know, among, among people just because they don't want to see how bad the centrist and a lot of times center left reality was, mm-hmm. you know, they don't want to see it because it's a whole lot more to the right than they ever wanted to admit yeah. until this new litmus comes along, you know, to show how much farther it could actually go. Right. Uh, but to see how much farther it actually goes, you have to be very realistic about where you were. And I don't think people are yet not, a, not all people. And I'm talking mostly about moderate center left liberals are not ready to see where we were, which I think makes them very unprepared for what's going to come. And, you know, I, and I also think, I mean, as long as we're talking about the poverty of our current moment, I, I also, <laughs> I also think that the left left, the social democratic socialist left, the whatever the weird left, you know, is ill-equipped to explain it. Mm. Um, they are, they have no capacity for patiently and reasonably attempting to make an explanation emotional and rational to people who invested their own emotional work into candidates like Obama and Hillary Clinton, President Obama and Hillary Clinton. And, and so we're in this moment where folks are, you know, ships passing in the night mm-hmm. and I, th- I think our best, I think our best chance actually is for, for folks to gain a collective consciousness mm-hmm. in, um, mass action that, that, that continuing action is important. I agree. Because I agree. when people are on the streets together, they, they find they, the body finds itself, um, mm-hmm. This is just Herbert Marcuse that I'm just mercilessly ripping off. Um, <laughs> but I really think he's right um, on that point. Um, and it, without, without, without people actually rubbing elbows together like that, I don't have a lot of hope for you know, some kind of dialogue coming. Well, and, and, and just to give a, the listener out there context, like I consider myself part of that 
left left i mean that's the that is that's that's where i'm at but i think you're completely accurate that there aren't enough voices in that crowd yet that can to a degree that you would need to start winning national elections yeah wrangle those that aren't of already of a similar mind well and it's not going to come out of the democratic party i mean no 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 we've seen that in this recent debate about who the new dnc chair should be and yes in my opinion they totally failed to react to the urgency of the moment you know i mean what what you need i mean in a perfect world what you need and what you have is an army of cornell west well yeah i mean you need you need someone that has the politic undergirded by you know the right sense of morality the right sense of faith and is somehow able to do it with this insane amount of grace yeah it's a it's a prophetic voice grounded in something outside of politics yes a narrative which 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 finds itself not um in the exercise of power but mm-hmm. in the understanding of uh, vulnerability and what liberation theologians would call the underside of history mm-hmm. um where one seeks to sow love into society rather than exercise control mm-hmm. without more voices like that. I don't, <clears throat> you know, in a postmodern moment, you know, it's <laughs> without more voices like Cornell West, I, it's not, there's really not a way to activate people um, mm-hmm. because every narrative that we would otherwise rely on is, um, is competing with every other narrative, which is why the idea of fact-checking, fact-checking Trump at every press conference or whatever is such a laughable, what a waste of time, impotent idea. The campaign was two years long. Yeah, people, well, people can't look at it and say that fact-checking is not going to defeat this new ideology. Well, I mean, go back, go back, because the true campaign using both very damning facts and complete hyperbole and lie, if, if you want to look at it like that, it's been going against this one particular person who was Hillary Clinton for... No, since 1996 right, or something right, like that. Right, since she was first lady. I mean, so, you know, I'm not trying to, like, leap to Hillary's defense or anything, but... Well, right. Because I'm, I'm just I mean, not going to do that. She's a flawed candidate. You know? Yeah, very flawed candidate, but if you want to talk about... But not as flawed as that narrative makes her out to be yes correct so but if you want to talk about how long these seeds of untruth have been sowed you know for this one person who's involved in this one particular race you can look back decades yeah that's true so it's not like this is some new phenomenon it's just been i mean it's it's been amped to a new degree but this is this isn't a new beast we're dealing with Right, it finally found its legs. Yes, uh, and I, I don't know. I don't know if it actually has the capability of you know, of becoming something other than kind of like a you know toddler. Um, mm. But uh, I hope you know. I hope not. I it, it sort of seems like it may destroy itself, but um, but that's just hope. I think I don't know if that's actually based on anything. You know, uh, I don't know either. 
there are those of us still dealing with the loss of hope in the sense that for a lot of us, we thought we had found, you know, the candidate of a lifetime in someone like Bernie Sanders, who, again, also a flawed candidate in a lot of ways. Sure. Yeah. But thought we had found that voice of someone who was speaking, well, speaking prophetically in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to, what to really say about that, except to say that I think that the, the death of that attempt, not, not saying it's the death of the movement by any means. Um, I, I genuinely hope it's not. I hope it is, you know, the moment where we see an equal force rise up to this, you know, new beast with, with newfound legs. You know, I hope that it's that. But I think it's going to take a while to get over that, the death of that possibility, mm-hmm. and not see it as the death of all possibility. So it turned out there was a future. There there was a future, yeah. Although the title of this one is The Death of All We Hold Dear. (laughs) The beginning of this is sort of autobiographical. I wonder if you're um, willing to talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, Well, I wrote that piece uh, because I guess, so this was published February 8th. So post-anog, post-anog. Anog. (laughs) Uh, All right, deserve Donald I'm Trump. done. <laughs> <laughs> this is why Trump won. Yeah, uh, like that. I finally hit my own moment. That's right. <laughs> so post anog, you know, I guess I got just so angry. Um, so I was getting angry, you know, by the you know, angry every minute uh-huh. at some new most likely criminal who is some glory child of the financial sector being put into a major position being put into a cabinet position and and name after name of Goldman Sachs. And, and so I was already angry about that as a lot of people were on the left. So very upset about that. And, and some people on the right too, who expected that that was not going to be part of the deal and felt uh, lied to in that way. So, so there's a lot of anger around that that I think I shared with a lot of people, whether they were kind of in my camp or not. And then where I started to get extra angry, we're seeing, um, and it happened so many times that finally I got fed enough, but fed up enough to write a piece, uh, which is, I guess what it takes these days. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I was seeing so many in the liberal camp that wanted to have an objection to this, but it was double handed in the way that it was a rejection of these particular people as representations of corporate greed, but it was done in a way that still defended capitalism. Yeah. So it was coming from both sides and all I could think about for weeks was the, the thing that I have slowly been realizing is, is kind of where I'm supposed to go with a lot of my, my own energy. And that's, that's, speaking to the evil that is money mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is capitalism. And so, so that was just all that was on the, the brain. And I started thinking about, well, why am I, why am I here uh, in this space? Why am I think, why do I think about this the way I do? Um, where's this anger coming from? So, you know, so I started thinking back to my own life and, and not for the first time for sure, but 
Um, I do have a little self-awareness. <laughs> uh, you know, so I think back to my childhood um, where we went into financial trouble as a family and then I watched my parents go through bankruptcy and, um, you know, so dealing with that and, and dealing with the way that, you know, the capitalist structure really let my parents, these two very hardworking people, and it just completely let them down. You know, and so fine. So, so that being the the very first and very real instance of me seeing, wow, this this system isn't here as a support. It's a wall you can climb, but there's no harness. You know, there's 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 no safety here. And you're not you're not saying you had that awareness as a child. You're saying that you've come to that awareness by reflecting on the experience that you had as a child. You saying I was a dumb kid? <laughs> Yeah, of course. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it really is. It's This has been a lot of me looking back saying, why was that so earth shattering mm-hmm. in a lot of ways? It's because I, like so many American kids, was raised with the idea that you work hard and things work out. Mm-hmm. That is the experience of our parents' generation for the most part. Mm-hmm. You work hard and things work out. Or at least that's the narrative they respond to such a high degree. But, I, mean, I still... I. I really deep inside myself. I, that like really resonates to me, that idea uh, that you can, you can work hard and uh, you can, you can get what you need. You can get what you want. You can have success. You can find stability, et cetera, et cetera. Because we are raised in a culture that it's a great story. Well, it's a great story. So, so that's twofold. We're raised in a culture that loves a good story, especially an underdog story. Yeah, and um, preaches self-sufficiency like it's gospel. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, so so I have this first big experience of the failings of capitalism, and it kind of wrecking my little world. And then, um, fast forward ten or twelve years or so. And I'm in grad school at, at good old Vanderbilt, uh, learning how to be a prophet. Me too. <laughs> and I'm there participating in a degree program that I'm in because I want to go on and be a professor. Mm-hmm. I want to go on and get my PhD somewhere else. And I start that program in 2008, which is when the bottom falls out. Mm-hmm. And so it's financial sector greed that turns into this monster that is the recession that wipes out the capability among a lot of other things, but it wipes out the capability of a lot of universities to, you know, or not necessarily the capability, but the willingness of a lot of universities to uh, use tenure track and instead start using a ton of adjunct work because it's a whole lot cheaper. Right. Which had already been happening. Yes, it had been. That's, it was just accelerated by, yes, by the financial it, problems. Well, also, you know, so not only had it already been happening and it was accelerated by these problems, but the dropout made it really clear that, you know, those couple of years that I thought I would have to work and save and be ready to move on to this next phase of school, that may not pan out the way that it would have had this recession not happened. Yeah, for sure. And wrapped up in all that is this existential thing at the back of my mind saying, oh, no. Here is this system again. Well, I'm getting the same crappy deal my parents did. Right. Yeah. Right. Because I, I'm here working hard and this isn't going to work out. <laughs> right. You know? 
so it's a very tough thing to see the system fail you a couple of times in the most severe ways and then have people that you think so it's you know it just totally doesn't bother me when someone who you know is is some self-affirmed conservative who who feels like that the system of money works the way it should mm-hmm. and um so I totally get that they disagree with me and that that doesn't bother me. We have we have a different worldview. But for people that I thought I shared such not an, if not a identical worldview but a very similar one to turn and defend this system partly out of nationalism uh partly out of familiarity and tradition mm-hmm. and partly out of what I have to believe is just straight up ignorance. You know, so that, especially since the election of Donald Trump, has really shaken me. That there are so many people who are left-leaning that still think that money and celebrity and the, the way of capitalism is going to pull us out of this. And the way of neoliberalism, which employs capitalism. With like small adjustments, you know, uh, without upsetting the status quo too much, we can kind of um, make the make the system that we live under more humane and that that's enough. Um, that, 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 that those small adjustments are uh, sufficient to tackling the evils of money itself. And the thing you say here that I think is interesting, you know, you say people like to mince words with the gospel tisk tisk to you that the love of money is evil, not money itself. And I hear that all the time that mm-hmm. you can take a spiritual stance toward money itself, um, which places capital and property in a right relation to your relationship with God, mm-hmm. and thereby the potential for money's corrupting power is, if not to get negated, then guarded against, which through the history of Christianity is like totally heretical. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'd like to read a couple of church fathers here. Sure. Go for it. I think are. But but wait, if, I mean, if there's no future, there's no past either. Um, Well, I'm going, we've already covered that. So like, I don't know. I don't know what the point is. (laughs) Right. I'm going back for these guys because I think they have a lot to say. (laughs) John Chrysostom, the rich are in possession of guilt of the goods of the poor, even if they have acquired them honestly or inherited them legally. Uh, No mincing words. And then this is the real famous one, uh, Basil of Caesarea. But as for you, when you hoard all these things in the insatiable bosom of greed, do you suppose you do no wrong in cheating so many people? Who is a man of greed? Someone who does not rest content with what is sufficient. Who is a cheater? Someone who takes away what belongs to others. And are you not a man of greed? Are you not a cheater? Taking those things which you receive for the sake of stewardship and making them your very own? Now, someone who takes a man who is clothed and renders renders him naked would be termed a robber. But when someone fails to clothe the naked while he is able to do this, is such a man deserving of any other appellation? The bread which you hold back belongs to the hungry. The coat which you guard in your locked storage chests belongs to the naked. 
the footwear moldering in your closet belongs to those without shoes. The silver that you keep hidden in a safe place belongs to the one in need. Thus, however many are those whom you could have provided for, so many are those whom you wrong. That's the end of the quote. So he's basically saying that like <clears throat> the extra pair of shoes that you own um, is like fuel on the pyre in which you will burn in hell. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I... That implicates practically everyone. Everyone. Practically Every- everyone. You, me, everyone. And I, th- I just, I think that, I think that's a lot more useful than what is really the Augustinian position. The Augustinian position that, that all goods are relative to the ultimate good. And I don't think it's fair to lay that at Augustine's feet necessarily, but I, that's how it's being used. I think that, I think you you get at um, you get at what he says a little more succinctly. Um, you say that systems that are built upon money are corrupt at their foundations, and that the human holding the dollar in relation to this system can never mean as much as the dollar itself. Basil is saying the human means more than anything you own. That the right that that your neighbor means more to God than anyone. And if we, if we're going to, I think if we're going to parse that Augustinian position rightly, and if um, we truly believe that money is in our stance toward money is part of a stance, which we take toward God, then our stance toward like the crucified and risen God demands that our, relationship toward money first clothes the naked you know shoes the person without shoes um, feeds the hungry um, and that that the privatization of capital and property is demonic <laughs> I you know is to, to have that as your to have that as your primary goal um, for an economy is is satanic well because there is with that lens of what you have belongs not to yourself that becomes a gospel lens or or that is a gospel lens because it completely uh this this sense of 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 capital at its heart can't be reconciled with kenosis yeah self-emptying yes it is impossible to follow christ so for the christian it is impossible to follow christ into this act of self-emptying if you're holding on to anything which is what he tries to get at when he tells the guy to go home and sell everything and then come back right you know that's i mean that's the idea there has to be an emptying of one's own will and that's not going to come along as long as you're still clinging stuff Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I tried to say there, there's no way, there's no way the person in that system can ever matter as much as the dollar. Practically, it can't because, you know, as much as we hear about benevolent capitalism and these companies that do really great things for people, if at the end of the day they don't get somebody's dollar, which that person 
might be better served putting towards food mm-hmm. or shelter or giving it to the person with no dollar, which we're called to do. If they don't do that, if the company doesn't get that dollar, they go out of business. Mm-hmm. And the system folds if enough businesses fold. Um, if enough business isn't there, if enough exchanging of dollars doesn't happen. So the person can never be the means, or the person can never be the end. They can only be the means mm-hmm. in that system, and which is completely antithetical. And like you said, satanic should be in the mind of the Christian. Yeah, that. I mean, the individual, the neighbor, the other, must always be an end in themselves, not a means to an end mm-hmm. in Christian ethics. Anybody's Christian ethics, it, it, if that ethics is to be understood as part of the part of the stream of history of Christian theology and ethics, you know, going back 2000 years. Um, it, well, and because it also completely separates us from the idea of a community of saints. There's no, there's no pooling of resources as an ax in America. The Christians, Christians are not direct. Christians are not directed to tithe. Christians are directed to share among the community. Yes. That doesn't no that doesn't mean they should set up a government which extracts wealth necessarily. There's an arg- there's an argument to be made there. Mm-hmm. Because the state in doing that, you know, arguably is um doing a kind of violence. But that's debatable. What isn't debatable is that the the church is commanded and the early church um lived out uh, a basically communist style of living and um, tithing is all well and good but the command is really more radical than that Uh, but that has been lost for centuries right except for in small you know pockets of real weirdos well because it can't survive an empire no yeah that's right man I just feel so good right now I feel great. I feel awesome. I don't know why to keep writing on the beard. I haven't written anything since uh, December 12th. And every time I sit down to write something, I sort of feel stymied. Um, So I've been trying to sort of like convince myself of a reason to continue writing. And did you find one? Well, kind of, um, I still haven't written written anything, but the reason (laughs) I wanted to podcast is because I felt like it would be something, right? It is something. We're doing something. Right. So it seems to me that going back probably decades, but particularly in the last decade, reality is increasingly mediated. One could say reality is always mediated by, our narratives, family, religious, societal, mm-hmm. etc. But in this case, I mean reality is mediated by media. That our ent- almost entire experience of reality, uh, and certainly political reality, is mediated through television, um, radio, newspapers, internet. Uh, and with the rise of social media, uh, our our relationships are are mediated as well. 
Incredibly so. And um, that that this condition of a mediated reality, mediated relationships, mediated mediated relationship to ourselves, mediated relationship to our own activities, the selfie culture, the social sharing of your bike ride, mm-hmm. um, the social sharing of your run, the inability to appreciate a moment without recording a moment. These are all mediating factors with the way that we interact with the world. And that a figure like Trump, who is sort of a media genius in a way, I mean, just the ability to have a hit TV show, you have to have a savvy for this for this new way of interacting with the world that most people don't have. People want to paint him as like a stupid man, um, I guess primarily because of the way he talks. But I think that's affected, and I think he's, I think he's really smart about certain things. And I think that the, actually that effect that he puts on is part of his genius. That, that, that the way he talks is something that he learned to do mm. at a young age, talking to builders on his dad's uh, construction projects. Uh, and that he thought it, and that he thought it was valuable to be able to. This is a tangent, but that he thought it was valuable to be able to talk to those guys in a way that they would understand. That that is a similar kind of genius as Obama's genius as an orator, affecting the cadence of a black church preacher, which Obama has no, really no authentic claim on. As a child, I mean, mm. he grew up with white grandparents and a white mom. He didn't go to he didn't go to an African American church until he was a grown man, um, and he didn't grow up talking like that, as far as I can tell. So Obama's Obama's ability to connect with people is pretty similar to to Trump's ability to connect with people. They just end up connecting with completely different. Oh, total, totally, totally, yeah, totally different audience. Right. Um, but but each claims a kind of authenticity. The black voice in our culture as much as black people, as African-American people are marginalized, um, that black voice carries an authenticity with it. Well, Trump's sort of blue collar, um, big league, you know, phrases and his way of speaking claim a kind of authenticity as well, just with different audiences. Yeah, and, and which you don't, just like you're saying, you don't, you don't pick up on that and you don't hit those notes correctly if there is not a shrewd learning in place. That's right. That is, that is learned behavior. Now, right. whether you can argue about his actual intelligence for it, I mean, who, know, who knows how much he means to do, but he has an aptitude for it. Right. I don't know if he could enumerate it, but he, but he, he does it and it connects with people. So anyway... I think that he's like, he's a person who has gifts that, that go toward this, this, um, reality, which is entirely mediated and do so in a way that, you know, the link factories like Buzzfeed, um, uh, do as well. Um, Hmm. you know, things are broken into sound bites and lists. There's incomplete sentences, the uh, sort of clickbait thing and all of that, which is actually kind of, been tamped down um in the last year or two i think but at least that tone uh you'll never you'll never believe what she said when he said this you know all that right it became such a parody of itself that it 
people didn't want to use it anymore. Collapsed under its own weight, but but that's what that's what Trump is playing into. So anyway, it seems important to me. This is all to say that long rambling tangent is all to say that it seems important to me to create original work, not merely take part in the mediation of the new cycle, but to, you know, put things out there, which, you know, attempt, attempt to point toward something else. What that something else is, I am not, I don't know what that is necessarily. And I feel sort of defeated the moment I say it, because I think that there are more think pieces and opinion pieces and diaries online by folks with a lot wider reach than we have, which are never read. And there are more and more of them every day. Exactly. So what's the point? Well, the point is that this is for me (laughs) and really no one else. Um, It's for me and it's something that I feel I need to do in order to survive. Um, Because if I simply sit and read the news and let it wash over me, I don't think I can swim through that current um, without generating something without generating some kind of some kind of response to it um, without trying to swim against that tide so I think that's as good as a reason as any to do it yeah uh, I mean it's, I, I think it's why we'll we'll continue doing what we're doing I don't know how it will look in the coming weeks and months but it, I, th- I think that that I think that importance is similar for both of us. Um, that need is similar for both of us. I would like to find some humor in things. This has not been a very funny podcast, uh-huh. uh, and um, uh, you know, I'd like to. I'd like to actually move back toward like the ability to like laugh at things, <laughs> and um, uh, I don't know how to do that without writing things and throwing them away and posting things that I don't think that are, are that good and, you know, posting things that don't have anything to do with this crisis that we're all <laughs> under. But, uh, I don't think we're, I don't think we're going to post as much as we did before, but, you know, I'd like to get back to, to recording this podcast every month. And, and my vision for the podcast is that it's kind of a, you know, director's commentary on the website. So, um, without content on the website, <laughs> What are we going to talk about? What are we going to talk about? Right. So we had to reach back like three months to record this podcast. And at the end of next month, it would be cool to have a couple of new things up on the site that aren't all written by Mark. But uh, anyway, that's kind of where I sit at the moment. Well, I can get on board with that, especially the not all the stuff written by me part. Yeah, right. I'm too lazy for this, man. I know. It's too hard. (laughs) Way too hard. The apocalypse has zapped me.